Bob Mazur talks about how they found out that another police officer was compromising their investigations. Yeah, I, I was going to get as much as I could about the Panamanian underworld um, and the Cali cartel. And I think we would have done 10 times more than what we did if it wasn't for this officer compromising the operation. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually, as it became clear and the way I found out about it was that, um, you know, DEA had the princess. DEA had a female informant at the top levels of the Cali cartel who was a major resource, who's written a book herself called Snatched. Um, and she went to a meeting and lo and behold, one of the guys who I was dealing with, I mean, she was at a very top end meeting of the Cali cartel. And one of the guys that I dealt with, a money broker and, and drug trafficker was there and said, man, we've got the greatest thing in the world. We've got a cop on the take. Welcome to Game of Crimes. I had an advantage. Um, well, yeah, was, you were at the IRS. You had no heart. You had no soul. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, it's, it's taken me decades to understand, you know, why did I really want to do this? Um, but I, I know what it was. And what it was is just like every idealistic person who goes into law enforcement, my goal was to be a part of making a difference. I never, ever wanted to be in management. I always, always wanted to be as close to the bad guys and, and close to the street as I possibly could be. And I always wanted to be a tool that got the biggest, baddest information that I could possibly get. And what ultimately happened to me is that information became my heroin. That is what made me click. I, I, you know, to, to, I'm, I'm dealing with Roberto Alcaino and the infiltrator and he gives me information about where the lab is located, what the company is that's the cover for moving it. And eventually we seize more than a ton of cocaine in a warehouse in downtown Manhattan. The feeling that you get as a result of that, being a person who wants to be a part of making a difference, um, causes you to want to get out there and let's get the next big thing. Mm -hmm. So, and then people go like, oh, wow, you know, you're in all these five-star hotels and these great restaurants and it's, you know, my feeling was I could have been in a McDonald's. It really didn't matter to me. My mouth was going up and down. I was chewing food, but I had two brains going. One of them was, I got to keep convincing them I'm this guy. But the other one was, how do I, my, you know, my agent brain is, how do I nudge the conversation without creating concern uh, to get it in the right direction for me to get more information, to get, to get what I'm really here for? So, so that really, uh, I think, um, helped me quite a bit. There's no doubt that there are people who lose grounding, but here's another un, uh, unintended luck. You know, my, my best friend in my life has been since I was 18 and she was 16, my wife. And we've been, you know, I'm not the, the most perfect husband by any means, but there's nothing on this planet that means more to me than her or my kids or my other immediate family. And there's nothing in me that would ever allow me to do anything that I thought they would be ashamed of me for. 
And unfortunately, part of the story of the betrayal, you know, includes the fact that I had an undercover guy working with me who was uh, a DEA task force officer who was on the take. I mean, two years before I started working, he was moving dope. He was taking intelligence and providing it to to uh, guys who were connected to the Cali cartel. And it was all for the money. That was the bottom line. But if you look at his profile, you can understand why. I mean, he had two divorces. He's paying alimony for several kids. Um, and and a mom. You know who that profile fits a lot to? Because when they look at it from an espionage standpoint, Americans always do it for the money. The Russians will tell you it's not ideology. They do it for the money. Aldra James, yep. divorced, paying mm-hmm. alimony, you know. Uh, Robert Hansen, his was a little bit more ego driven, but Aldridge, I mean, uh, Earl Edwin, Nick, or Earl uh, Edwin Pitts, Harold James Nicholson, some of the big espionage cases. You're right. They all did it for the money. Um, hey, before we get too far into the betrayal, because that's your second book, let's right. kind of go back, circle back. Let's talk about the infiltrator and let's let's work the case that Steve is still flummoxed by today. Okay. Uh, that we're going to have and talk very slow for Steve because he's from West Virginia. And loud. And loud. And loud, <laughs> slow enough. But, okay. but let's go back let's go back and talk about the precursor because now we've got, I mean, fabulous information about working undercover and the extents you w- went to, which obviously serves you well in this case. So let's talk about, let's get into Sea Chase now and how this, how the operation came about and then how you ended up writing the book, uh, The Infiltrator, about that. Well, with respect to laundering money, the Medellin cartel, um, on a scale of education of money launderers, I'd put them like at a junior in high school compared to the Cali cartel, which in my view, um, actually there were PhDs in money laundering, totally different methodology of laundering. The Medellin cartel, beside having the coletas and the, and the cash in holes back in, Mex- in, in uh, Colombia, they relied upon the black uh, market money exchange, the uh, black market peso exchange in that region of the world, but it's one of many, many black markets around the world. So when I try to help people to understand what, what is it like to run black market money and to be a person who carries out either exchanges of dollars for pesos or dollars for goods, Think back to economics. I don't know if you took economics 101, but if you did, I remember my professor, the big deal was supply and demand. If you're a businessman and your supply and your demand are equal, you will be a very wealthy guy because you won't have excess supply taking up capital. Or if you have short supply, you won't have impatient clients who are looking elsewhere. So what do I have? I have unlimited amounts of currency coming to me from the Medellin cartel. Who are they going? They need to find somebody who has something they want that is going to give them what they want and will take dollars for it. The easiest and the lowest hanging fruit are importers in Colombia who at the time, if they wanted to go through official channels, would lose about 28% of the value of their pesos to buy dollars through the official market. Plus, once they did that, they had to declare that they were importers and the Colombian government, Dion, is going to be looking for them to be paying taxes. Um, and so they don't want to do that. So they'll much rather than lose 28%, they would much rather come to me as a black marketer, black market uh, money guy, and buy pesos because I have demand clients, importers, willing to sell those 
to my supply clients on the other side. Now, I don't want them to ever meet one another because if, if the trafficker knows who the importers are, he'll start dealing with them directly. That's why yeah, we you do get, this. yeah, you get cut out. Yeah. You yeah. You're out. Not, yeah. Yeah. So, so now, um, and, and you, vice versa, you don't want the importers to know who the, the brokers are that deal with the traffickers because you're going to get cut out. So the trafficker at the highest level is going to be willing to give up probably somewhere in the range of about 15% of the value of their money on this simple example to get Colombian pesos. So I'm going to make 15% on that side. On the demand side, the guy who's got the import business and wants the dollars is probably going to pay as much as 10% of his value of his money in order to be able to get the dollars. So I'm making a swap of a million bucks. I make $250,000 swapping dollars for pesos because I have payers on both sides, supply and demand clients willing to take advantage of getting what it is they want. Now, sometimes the traffickers don't want pesos. Sometimes they want the money just put into a Swiss account. You're going to charge them a fee for that. Sometimes they're going to want to be able to uh, buy goods in a free trade zone. And you can arrange for that. Um, so that's kind of the simple side. Now, the question then in their minds was, well, how do you get rid of the cash? How come you are able to get rid of the cash? Well, that's pretty easy. I got 30 jewelry store locations on the East Coast. I also have a private plane that services an air charter service from Florida to the Bahamas. I can fly anywhere in the Caribbean and get rid of the cash. So they had, and that was another problem uh, that I saw. My bosses would say, they don't, don't tell them how you're going to launder the money. They don't need to know. My comeback would be, how the heck do you expect me to get them to be comfortable that I know what the hell I'm doing unless I lay it out? And, and so it goes far further than that because after we had the cash, then into bank accounts, then it went through the BCCI money laundering system where they took that, that capital, put it in Luxembourg in a CD, provided a loan in another part of the world in another offshore entity. And then hey, and let everybody know, let everybody know real quick too, before we go too far and who BCCI is and how big they were, you know, what their role in this was. Sure. BCCI was the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI. It was the seventh largest privately held bank in the world. Where was it, it headquartered out of? Uh, it was headquartered out of two locations, Luxembourg and Grand Cayman. Huh, but Naturally. The, yeah. But the bank itself was managed by Pakistanis. And the bank's ownership was based in Saudi Arabia. They were the largest Arab bank in the world at that time, expecting to become bigger movers and shakers in the international banking community, which is why the unfounded ac accusation by some people in Pakistan is that they felt that BCCI got targeted through a combination of influence of law enforcement by the intelligence community and uh, the Western banking community who wanted to knock them down off their peg. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's not the case whatsoever. As I just told someone else in an interview not long ago, if BCCI was guilty of anything, it was they bought big gold signs that they should have never bought. Because the only reason I walked in that bank was because they had a massive gold sign that said Bank of Credit and Commerce International. 
and the Medellin cartel was saying to me, ultimate payout to our accounts in Panama must not come from dollar accounts within the borders of the United States, must come from U.S. dollar accounts in Panama. And why? Because we own Noriega. And we know he'll never give up any accounts that are associated with us. So we need you to open them up. Hey, but Bob, but we had we had our second episode was with George Young, which was Pablo's business partner, and he had sixty five million dollars in an account down in Panama, and he got nationalized by Noriega. Didn't he have a bad habit, even though he said he wouldn't do that, that he would nationalize accounts and take money? Yeah, uh, yeah, it's called uh, the land of opportunity. Oh, there's nothing, <laughs> there's nothing I could do about that. The government, uh, you know, they forced this, they did that. You know, the best thing that ever happened um, for the BCCI investigation was um, when, um, I guess it would have been Reagan and, and uh, Bush at that time, when they froze all Panamanian country dollar accounts at the Fed. Because at that stage, everybody was running around with their hair on fire going, where the hell are we going to go with this cash now? And so I went back to my BCCI contacts and I said, listen, Panama's too hot. Now, that, that was hard for me to do because my financial advisor, a guy by the name of Amjad Awan was the financial advisor for Manuel Noriega. And um, there were times when I'd be sitting with him and he'd be on the phone with Marcella. I can't remember her last name, was the secretary for Noriega. And I'm hearing all the stories about where the money's going, passing on the, passing on the information. But when they did that, I went to the guys in Miami and I said, hey, do you have any suggestions other than, uh, other than Panama? because I need an option, an alternate option. My clients don't want to go through Panama anymore. And they said, well, yeah, we have an inner circle of people all around the world that work for, you know, with clients like you. So then they introduced me to three guys in Paris, uh, one of the guys in uh, the UK, uh, one, the manager in the Bahamas, a guy in LA. Next thing I knew, man, I had, I had met so many bank officers, including a board member, and had explicit conversations with them about the source of the money. So, yeah, Noriega sometimes would not um, necessarily tell the truth um, uh, about why certain things had to happen the, the way he claimed them to happen. But I do know that Fabio Ochoa sent him a, a small coffin. And um, that's where they got the scene from uh, the infiltrator. They, of course you know, Hollywoodized it and had a coffin sent to me, but I had explained to them that I was with Roberto Elcaino, who was laughing with another guy who was uh, pretty big in the Medellin cartel about how Fabio had just sent a, a small coffin to Noriega and told him that if he lost any of his money, I mean, any of his money, he'd be able to use that little coffin to have his body parts put in it. So um, I guess maybe George didn't have the sway that, uh, I don't think did. yeah I don't think he did even though he was working with Pablo um but, yeah. but well, when we say to... small coffin he was a small guy anyway sorry Steve go ahead uh, he, and he's a gringo on top of everything else that that yeah. wasn't working in his favor that didn't yeah. help him so how, how let's book in this real quick too cuz I want to know how far along we are how long overall how long did operation sea chase take you in terms of months and years how long did you work that okay it took um about a year and a half to put up, put together the front. It took two years of undercover. And then the most important two years was preparing for trial. And I knew whoever knew those tapes best was going to win the case. Um, and so 
and, and, and it's a good thing I did because the longest trial, I mean, we had trials around the U.S. and we had trials in the U.K., but the longest trial was in Tampa. It lasted three months. And I got on the witness stand in the middle of March and I got off in the middle of June. I was oh on the stand gosh. every single court day for three months, six oh weeks, six weeks of direct and six weeks across. Man, and, um, I was so intent on trial prep concerning the tapes that and, and, and I'm just kind of obsessed with detail. And I think that that although it's it's a flaw in this case, it was an asset. Um, we, I got done with the undercover thinking that, okay, I'm handing off all these tapes and they're going to be copied when they get back to the office. And there's going to be a transcription company that's working on them. And I get and this back. is what we call in law enforcement, a teachable moment. You are about yes. to find <laughs> out what. <laughs> Everything that I handed off was in a big ass file cabinet sitting there. There hadn't even been copies made of the tapes. Oh, no shit. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> so now we're, you know, we, we, we need to put together a team in order to be able to get this stuff transcribed. And, uh, and we do, you know, we had a team of like 12 and of them, um, maybe we, we had a, a transcription company out of Miami, plus about five of us that were working nonstop on the tapes. But now we're getting into the trial and the trial starts in January and I've finished transcribing, but I haven't really studied those tapes the way they need to be studied. So I came up with this idea and we got a computer guy. This is, you know, we're talking 1990. So there's not a lot of software programs and all this other stuff that's out there. But I got this guy to basically put together a program. I took every transcript. First of all, I said to the office, listen, uh, and I had uh, allegedly had a contract on my life. So we had a, a couple of witnesses and we had an intercept. How much and was yours worth? A half million. See, so, Steve? Ha. Steve was only worth 350 k to Pablo. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. Uh, Pops, how big was your seizure? I don't know. How big was the, how big was the bounty on your head? Half a million. Mine was a million. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's not a comfortable so, feeling, is it, Bob? Uh, no, it's not. You know, and... um. Uh, and, and, and what the family goes through on that. And here was customs answer to that. Oh, we're going to, we're going to have two six man, uh, teams, 12 hours each, um, at, at your home. And they're going to be there with machine guns and shotguns. I said, it ain't happening, man. My, my, my wife and my kids are waiting for me to come home. And you know, and I know you'll have that detail there for 30 days at most. You're going to come back and you're going to go, we cannot substantiate whether or not there is, in fact, a contract. And then you're going to leave. And my kids are going to start having nightmares about that agent that sat there with the machine gun waiting for the bad guy to pop through the window. I said, it ain't yeah. happening. I said, you know what? I made a false ID and they knew it because I'd coordinated it with headquarters. I made a false ID during the course of the undercover operation because I knew damn well these people were going to be very pissed. And they let me use that. And they funded, uh, we sold our house. We had a rental that was in the outskirts. I had to be accessible. So I couldn't move to, you know, the other side of the country because there was no zoom. If there'd been zoom and that kind of stuff would be a different story, but there wasn't. So now I've got an hour and a half commute 
which for Miami, that's not a big deal. But for Tampa, that's like you must live out in the uh, super outskirts. So anyway, um, I said, listen, that's three hours in a car. I got probably three months before I'm going to testify. So here's my next crazy request. I would like you to get me a hotel room right by, not far from the office, was within probably four miles of the office. I want all the tapes there. I want recording equipment there. And I want to be able to dictate as I read the transcripts. I made this Ouija board up that had like 40 categories. They were all trial-based categories. One might be, you know, what was said about Noriega. One might be, well, you know, conversations about the source of the funds. One might be tax conspiracy. One might be something else. It's so, kind of like a keyword guide. Keyword guide. So then I would read the transcript, maybe the first three pages. And then I would say, and while I'm recording it, categories one, five, and 40. Then I'd read the next 10 pages, or categories seven, nine, and eight. Now, I'm summarizing what those pages mean. They had the pages, what it summarized to say, what categories were involved. And then when we were done, I had them print out a category printout. So when the guy says to me, when the defense attorney says to me, you never told my client that the source of these funds was drug proceeds, did you? Um, Your Honor, may I refer to, I, I did. And Your Honor, may I refer to my notes? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah. On this day, this day, this day, and this day, these are the passages, blah, 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 blah. Another thing that they tried to do to me during the trial was to do what you've brought up, the topic of role reversal. Now, you can only do what you can do as you read. I don't recommend this for any undercover. I had a unique circumstance. I had the best judge on the planet in Judge Hodges, who was a senior district court judge um, in Tampa, later went on to Jacksonville. So Judge Hodges knew me from many other cases. Now, I'm being cross-examined by a guy out of Miami by the name of Jay Hogan. Hogan used to represent a lot of uh, guys in the cartel, along with uh, Bob Scrolla, who's a judge, district court judge there. Now, they were both uh, defense attorneys in that trial. But uh, Hogan had the job of trying to establish role reversal. One of the things that I was always told in the undercover school was, I know you want to be polite as an agent, but if somebody doesn't refer to you by your real name and refers to you by your undercover name, politely remind them that that's your undercover name and what your real name is. After about the 30,000th time that I said to Hogan, Mr. Hogan, my name is Mazer, who sells my undercover name. Now, I'm, I'm, the jury's rolling their eyes because they know the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Even the judge was somewhat rolling his eyes. So I said to Hogan, I said, and, and, and Mr. Hogan, if it would help tomorrow, I'll bring a name tag. And, <laughs> I'll, and, and, and that way you'll see my name. And he just laughed just the way you did. So the next day, I knew damn well his first question was going to be, Agent Musella, blah, 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 blah. So... I had two yellow stickums with bold black magic marker that said Mazer. <laughs> so I took it and I put it on my chest and I said, Mr. Hogan, I promised I would bring you 
a gift. <laughs> if you couldn't remember, my name was Mazer. And there it is. And he laughed. And I said, oh, and I have a second one if you'd like to put it up by the podium. Which he said, oh, okay, you know, he's still trying to make light of it. And he takes it and he turns around. And as he's walking back to the podium, I could have, been a, I could have gotten put in a lockup for this. But I said, and we all know you know my name is Mazer. And he turned around screaming, pointing his finger at me, demanding a mistrial and all this other stuff. And you could hear a pin drop because everybody in that room knew he knew right. my real name. And he had done it for this bogus effort to try to suggest that I thought I was somebody other than who I was saying I was. And um, I definitely would not do that in Judge Adams' courtroom. But uh, I, I would do that in Judge Hodges's courtroom. And he and I have spoken uh, often. You know, one of the, the, uh, one of the other defense attorneys, a guy out of Washington, he goes, well, he's representing one of the bankers. And he goes, now this money went here and it did this and it did that and it went here and it did that. That's just normal business transactions, isn't it? And I looked at him and I said, no, sir, that's money laundering. And he went ape and he's demanding a, uh, a, a, a uh, mistrial and <laughs> they dismiss the jury and I'll never forget this. And, and uh, so uh, Judge Hodges turns to this guy and he goes, maybe you want to think hard about the questions you ask this witness because it appears to me he's pretty smart. <laughs> I said, <laughs> said to myself, wow, I think I got the judge in my corner here. Uh, you know, did, you, did you smile when he said that? Uh, no, I tried not to because, yeah. you know, but it, it almost becomes role reversal in the courtroom because I'm spending three months with these defense attorneys and with the jurors and with the families of the bad guys. Um, and in your question about, you know, did I feel any type of sympathy toward them? Um. If I like you, you know I like you. And if I don't like you, you know I don't like you. And that's how I acted as Robert Masella. I couldn't put on for a guy as though I thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. It would be more of a situation where, you know, we need each other, so we're going to do business together. But I wouldn't go socializing with him or any of that kind of stuff. On Roberto, I knew he was lying to the government when he tried to suggest that he didn't know who the buyers were of the 2,000 kilos of Coke that got seized at the warehouse when he'd been telling me that it was, it was headed to Boston for a mob family in Boston. So, uh, you know, when I got to meet him after he was arrested, he had dagger eyes. Uh, and, but eventually I told him, listen, it's just a job, man. And I promise you, if you do the right thing, I'll work as hard for you as I did to do my job as an undercover agent. And he kind of let it go. Um, so, but the ones I felt the worst about really were the bankers. Um, when I finished testifying in June, the trial still had to go another month or so. And uh, I had hey, Bob, already told, Real yeah. quick before you, how many total defendants are we talking about here now? By the time you make this case, how many people uh, end up being charged? Uh, and are they all on trial at the same time? Or are you doing multiple trials? Doing multiple trials, 85 initially charged, but then there was a second wave that got us to like 100 or, you know, more over 100. Um, this Jeez. one had six, 
This one had six defendants. Um, one guy who's who was really in charge of getting the Medellin cartels air force. He worked with a guy by the name of Ricardo Londoño, who was a uh, race car driver that taught Pablo how to race racing cars and, uh, and, and also was in charge of getting, they wanted Rockwell 1000s and Rockwell 980s because they could take off and land on short runways, bumpy runways. They had big gas capacities, uh, long range. And um, so this guy that I was dealing with, Rudolf Armbrecht, was uh, working with Londonio to to, uh, to get those, and th- these are guys are direct reports, right, to Pablo Escobar and to um, uh, and to uh, Gerardo Moncada. Gerardo Moncada and Fernando Galeano were my two main clients um, in the infiltrator uh, thing, and and then the others were bankers um, who were in that. All of the others were bankers. Uh, Roberto had pled guilty. Otherwise he would have been in there, um, as well. But so now we're gone. I told him my family and I, we, you know, we got to heal, man. So I rented a motorhome for a month and we went to the smoky mountains and I said, don't bother calling my cell. Um, I'll take this pager. I don't know. It's going to work in the smokies, but you know, it has a call in number. So I promise you I'll call in periodically and see if there's something you need from me. So I called in and the first message from them was, Bob, I hate to tell you this, but we may have a mistrial. One of the jurors had uh, Rudy's phone book and it had Gerardo Moncada's phone numbers in it. And the juror takes the damn phone book home or the numbers from the phone book and calls the numbers. And he calls asking for Gerardo Moncada. I guess he wanted to pressure test the evidence. And he comes back the next day and tells the other jurors. And one of the ladies on the jury, her husband was a cop. And he said, you got to tell the judge that this happened. That juror is not supposed to do this. So thank God the judge for the first time ever in the 11th Circuit was able to dismiss that juror. The um, alternates had already been dismissed and he allowed the verdict to be rendered by 11 instead of 12. Wow. Yep. yep. And um, of course they tried to appeal that. Well, there are certain conditions under which, yeah, there are certain conditions under which that can be done. And you just, it's, it's uh, us versus Amjad Awan. So go to Pacer and you'll find all the appeals. But, so, but, but you know, the defense attorney's going, it's the one they dismissed. That was going to be the person who voted not guilty. We would have had a hung jury. You've just you've just denied my client their due process, their day in court, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, well, well and the media showed up at this guy's house trying to knock on the door. And when they did the TV uh, broadcast about this, they said, well, we tried to reach Mr. So-and-so. But according to uh, a family member, he's taken a trip to Las Vegas. and i'm thinking to myself how much of that was a setup and how much of that was just an accident yeah and and remind everybody who moncada and galliano are yeah well fernando uh, galliano and gerardo moncada were pablo escobar's principal route managers during the last stages or so of his rule of the medellin cartel now this is going back to 86 to 88 
Not a too many people knew who Gerardo Moncada and Fernando Galeano mm-hmm. were back in that time frame. But I'm, we're feeding them this information about this stuff, and it's not clicking. Um, but they were, they were very, very big. And, who, um, and what happened to them? Well, they had this little problem that uh, occurred. This is getting this. This brought you in and uh, <laughs> on stage when, it um, yeah, it sure did. When, uh, unfortunately for them, uh, there was this coleta that was found in one of the properties. Galliano and Moncada were pretty close. Yeah. Although Moncada had Moncada had an engineering degree, he had fronts of you know businesses. Galliano kind of ran from the seat of his pants and didn't really have a lot of that stuff, but they found this Coletta with like, I think 20 million bucks in it and 23, 23. Yeah. So unfortunately for him, I guess, uh, Pablo thought that that was money that they'd evaded from the war taxes and, uh, decided that he needed to make an example of them for, uh, for their lack of loyalty. And then I've heard different stories yep. from different people about exactly how they did it. Um, but the one person I've heard directly from may be wrong because uh, I think it was portrayed a little differently in, in Narcos. But at, at some stage, I know they were hung by their feet, or at least I was told they were hung by their feet. And they used blow torches to melt their skin for a while. Well, but eventually they chopped them up and I think they became ash. And I'm not so sure anybody's ever found them. And then he, went after all, then he went for siblings. He went for all their associates and began the internal cleansing. Yeah, well, the condition is called assuming room temperature. When you've assumed room temperature, <laughs> it's a from a diagnostic standpoint. Yeah, it's pretty much over for you, regardless of how many pieces you're in. So, um, well, and, it led, and that's it led to Pablo's escape, and there goes the second man hunt. Yeah, well, and see, the thing is, it's amazing how these stories all intertwine. Now, let me ask you something, uh, Bob. At that time, did you know of Murph and JP? At that point, did you know what they were doing in DEA? Or, mm-hmm. wow. No. And, you know, I, I and this happens in all agencies and I'm not, you know, saying it, it all boils down to individuals. You know, we're, we're we all have to be responsible for doing what we think is the right thing. And sometimes what people honestly think is the right thing turns out to be maybe not the right thing in another person's eyes. But but they're all done with good intent. But I I, I was denied the opportunity to go to Panama undercover. I had an invitation to meet with Noriega. And be be housed by it by Amjad Awan, my financial advisor, who used to be the manager of the BCCI branch in Panama and whose father was the head of the Pakistani National Police and in charge of the ISI. So I had pretty good con, uh, con- control of security if that had happened. But I was told that uh, Customs was told that, you know, no DEA felt it was too dangerous um, for an agent to go undercover there. But. Later, it turned out that, you know, at the nearly the very same time with uh, uh, the Atlanta undercover operation, I know my very good friend Cesar Diaz was down in Panama doing undercover. So, you know, I scratch my head when I wonder why it was too (laughs) dangerous for me, but it wasn't too dangerous for Cesar. Oh, you know, uh, I know. know. uh, (laughs) We can't we can't have these inside baseball jokes. Okay, why? Why was that, Murph? Well, the uh, listeners can't see this, but my right fist is customs. My left fist is DEA, and I'm striking them together. Butting heads. Because they're butting heads. Don't get along. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I think that's improved, Steve. What do you think? 
Uh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, see, all, all it takes to see when I used to teach interview and interrogation, I said, it's not the answer. Listen to the delay in the answer. What do you think, Steve? Oh, yeah. you know, it's like, have you ever robbed a bank? Oh, yeah. <laughs> define know, Rob. <laughs> yeah, define Rob. Uh, you know, it's like we had the one guest who was it they said they'd really like to meet Pablo. I said, hey, shocker, dude, Pablo's dead. That's going to be a little tough. So, yeah. yeah. Hey, but, um, but, but Bob, let's, let's talk about that too, because, um, we kind of want to bring it full circle because you're at customs, but let's, t- let's close this piece on customs out by talking about your book, the infiltrator. Cause I'm very interested in what point did you write this? Why did you decide to write? Why did you decide to write this? And then how does somebody, the caliber of a Brian Cranston get a hold? I mean, how does the, how does the process of something, somebody like him getting a hold of this and turning it into a movie? Well, you know, I wrote the book in 2009 and, and when um, did you punch out of federal service? 1998. Okay. So you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're ways removed from your federal time and everything. Yeah. You know, when, when I retired uh, from DEA, I started a one man investigative uh, business and consulting because I had an offer by the independent counsel's office to be engaged by them to help them to work on uh, one of the cases that was going after one of the uh, former secretary of housing uh, or of HUD. And, um, and so I had an instant client and most of the people who were working at the independent counsel's office were lawyers who used to be prosecutors who were now, they may wave the magic wand and they, they made them special prosecutors. And so it, it instantaneously gave me contact to a bunch of law firms. And the next thing I knew I had a, an investigative agency with 10 former federal agents for, and I purposely found 10 agents from five or six different agencies because I wanted a broad uh, area of expertise within the diversification. agency diversification, yep. you know, um, and we even had uh, Cesar Diaz's wife, a probation officer. They're doing uh, pre-sentence reviews, um, and, 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 uh, IRS agents and Homeland security and DEA and FBI. And we got along really well. Um, we had one big thing in common and I mean, our company, uh, motto was family first. I mean, if you've got something that your family needs, you know, one of us will pick up, don't worry about it. And the other one was to, you know, try to make a decent living and, and, um, and provide a good service. So, you know, how it is with the cottage industry around the world, you dealt with people in many different countries and there are a lot of these small cottage industry things that are out there and we bonded with them. And I mean, there was no information in any corner of the world we couldn't get. So I'd been doing that. Now I thought about it. And real quick, you forgot the third motto is we always let the FBI people write the press releases. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well that's the best part that he went from he went from irs to customs to dea and never looked at fbi yeah, that's right Good man <laughs> yeah yeah so and and my my transition my transition to, to dea was interesting because i was one of the old men um i was 41 when i went through quantico and um it was a different experience and I, and, I, and the guy who hired me out of Tampa, Mike Powers, uh, is the guy who said to me, you know, hey, I, 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 I'm sensing you're not going to really want to stay with customs. I pissed off enough people at customs that I knew there would be a target on my back, basically because I, I let it be known in writing. You know, they were taking resources off this case left and right, and there was stuff that needed to be done that wasn't being done. And okay, if you're not going to do it, fine, but you need to be held accountable. So I was writing the memos on 
what needed to be done, what wasn't being done, and all these other good things, and eventually testified before a Senate co- subcommittee um, about the fact that inexplicably these these resources were taken off the case, which made a huge difference in our ability to go after some major, major people that we could have um, otherwise gone after. So by that stage, you know, I, I knew my days were numbered, and Mike said to me, well, if, if you were interested in coming to DEA, I'd really, really like to do another one of those money laundering undercover ops. Um, and I said, well, Mike, the only thing that I'm not so sure you can guarantee me is, one, I can't take a bust and pay again. So I'm a 1310. If you make me a 1310 and uh, my daughter's got two years left to go before she's in college, just guarantee me for a couple of years, I'll be in Tampa. And then after that, um, you know, do what you got to do. And he said, I'll make it happen. And uh, Mike, for very good reasons, has a way of being able to convince other people that mm-hmm. his idea is a good idea. <laughs> He's, <laughs> and, a legend. He's a he legend. He is a legend. And, and, and he made it happen. And, and so, um, so I got to go through that. And, and it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But I was really disappointed. Maybe it's changed now. But, you know, of all the agencies on the planet that I think would benefit from long-term undercover training, um, it's DEA. And, you know, I know too many horror stories, two of which I mention in, the, in my book, that clearly these people were never trained in it. They had all mm-hmm. the, red, uh, the red flags for why it is that you would think that you better psychologically profile them and they needed a lot of supervision and they didn't get it and they crashed and burned. And, yep. and the guy who I formerly worked with got 11 years. I'm just sorry it was only 11. Um, and I'm glad I got a chance to be a part of putting the uh, evidence together that that unequivocally made it clear uh, that he was dirty. And that uh, and your second book, The Betrayal, which we just kind of alluded to, you lay that out. Uh, I've only read about I was about 60 percent of the way through. So I went ahead and read the last two chapters. <laughs> <laughs> and so I know who you're talking about there. But, you know, and that's a guy who was elected officer of the year. Right. He yes. received that award. He sure was um, officer of the year. And um uh, considered a, a rock star in some eyes um, within DEA, mm-hmm. um, but hey, you know, it was mismanage to... of informants, mismanagement yeah. informants. That, well, that and, was it. And that's the thing too. You don't have that oversight, that transparency. The people who are there to make sure the guardrails stay in place and things don't go, um, you know, off the rails, so to speak. But finish finish up real quick too about um, you. You wrote the book. How, how do you? How did you go from? What prompted you to write the book? And then how do you go from that to having? Uh, you know, obviously it gets optioned. Hollywood takes a look at it, turns into right. a movie. How did that process come about? Well, um, I was fortunate in that I was contacted by Universal Studios to be a technical consultant on the Miami Vice movie, which goes to show you that I'm maybe better at undercover than I am at technical advising. But anyway, <laughs> it made a lot of money. It made a lot of money because Michael Mann was the director and, and yeah. Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell were in it. Um, but so, why is it that Miami vice is a running thread for almost every episode we do either. It's people saw Miami vice and they say, I wanted to go be a cop or Murph thought he was going to be driving fancy cars. And now you're the technical consultant for Miami vice, the movie. Yeah. <laughs> did you get, did you get, at least did you get to meet the real guys from Miami vice, you know, uh, Don Johnson or anybody? No, no, I didn't. Um, because they weren't involved in the movie, no. um, at all. But um, actually, when I got that phone call from Universal Studios, I thought it was one of my buddies trying to pull a fast one on me. (laughs) Oh, you know, we've got this contract for you to work for Universal Studios on Miami Vice with Jamie Foxx and Colin Farrell. I was like, 
Yeah, right. I said, sure. okay, send, yeah, send me the contract. And sure enough, it showed up in the email. And, um, and so <laughs> how did they find, how did they find you? I mean, out of all the people, how did they find you? Uh, their research, uh, I guess I had, um, among other things on my website was information about my having worked, um, undercover as a money launderer within the Medellin cartel. And because a lot of the work that we were doing, um, related to, you know, money related cases, uh, financial crime. So it was one of the things that I, uh, and you were also down in that Florida area too, which made it, you know, you had a feel for the vibe and everything. Yeah, yeah. So I so I work with them and and I got to sit down with uh, Michael Mann. And, and at at the end of it, he goes, I'd like to do a movie about your life. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I see. I can envision what this would be like. He goes, but you got to do the hard part first. You got to write a book. I said, OK, well, how, how do I go about doing that? So he goes, well, you know, you're going to need a ghostwriter. And I couldn't recommend any higher um, anybody any higher than Elaine Shannon. So Elaine Shannon, wow. who wrote Desperados, yeah, and I got together. At the time, she was working with Time Magazine, and she was assigned to Condoleezza Rice, and she was flying all over the world. So it was hard to really get things moving. And eventually, we both came to the decision that, all right, maybe we sh- you should find somebody else. So now I, I don't have her. But I've got the makings of a uh, book proposal. And I go to, oh, I know who I reached out for. I reached out for Mark Bowden because he had done Killing Pablo. So Mark Bowden goes, well, you know, I got all this stuff on my my list. And, you know, I'm not I don't have the time to do it. But here's the name of a guy. And I forgot that guy's name. And he goes, you know, call him. He may be able to do it. So I called this guy and he goes, no, I'm backed up on too much stuff. He goes, but you know, you're going about this backwards. You've got the idea. You've got the story. You've got the beginnings of a proposal. You need a book agent. The book agent is going to have a stable of writers. They'll get you a ghostwriter and they'll market it and try to find a publisher and try to find a film rights person. So you need to go to Sterling Lord Literistic in Manhattan. One of the, it's been around for like 80 years, very highly respected agency. So I went there and I met with this lady and I started Phil, Bro, uh, Phyllis Bro, Brophy. So I, I told her about it and she said, well, I know Michael Mann personally. He's told me about this story. Sh- sure. We'll take you. Um, and I said, okay. And I said, well, now what do we need to do in the way of a, a ghostwriter? So she said, well, we've got all these want to be writers and um, you can do an, uh, a contract for hire. And that's an important thing for any law enforcement officer that wants to do this. You don't want to lock into a writer on your proposal who now has the guarantee that they're going to be writing the book because so many people have different ideas after they've seen the proposal. So I did a straight out contract for hire and it wasn't that expensive at like five grand. And I paid for this young lady's assistance. She was an editor um, with a publishing company. We put a a proposal together. I gave it to Robert uh, uh, Ginsler, my agent at Sterling Lord, and he gave it to uh, a couple of different publishers. And lo and behold, one of the Hachette uh, Arms um, Arcade Publishing bought it. So now I think I'm okay. I'm getting ready to go. It's going to be good. 
So uh, there were only one. Have you already bought your boat yet and the slip where you're going to put your yacht and everything? No, no. It's, it's at, at this stage, it's costing me more than it is. I'm making money. <laughs> okay. If I, you know, I tell people if, if you think you're going to, you're going to get rich writing a book, you're going to get rich because of the opportunity to be able to share information. It's not because of the money you make writing the book. You've got to go, that book has to be something that becomes part of your platform. So, so now um, I've, they've got the proposal. They go to um, Arcade Publishing. Arcade says yes. They only have one detailed chapter because the proposal only has one detailed chapter. And the, the uh, editor there goes to me, hey, do you have any other chapters? I go, I got about six, but nobody's ever seen them. I wrote them. And the, the ghostwriter hasn't seen him. He said, well, send him to me anyway. I sent him. He called me back. He goes, hey, we think you can write the book. We don't think you need a ghost agent, we, we, a ghostwriter. We, we think our editor will work with you and, you know, it'll all work out. So lo and behold, that's when I got anointed as an author. And, um, and so now I'm writing the book with the help of the editor. And all, all of a sudden, unfortunately, as we're getting ready the owner, because it was a mom and pop owned publishing company, the owner unexpectedly passed from a massive heart attack. Now the publishing company is going to the two sons who don't really want to have anything to do with publishing. And my, uh, my proposal becomes an asset that they sell to another publishing company, Little Brown, which has a very good reputation. And then we made the book. So the first go around, um, the movie rights were purchased. Mark Cuban has a publishing company and I've forgotten the name. I mean, a production company. I forgot the name of it. He bought the production rights. We dealt with a screenwriter. He was a screenwriter who did, did the series on the capturing of Saddam Hussein. And um, it never really went anywhere. And eventually, after two rounds, I got the rights back. And luck's better than being good. Um, <laughs> a, a friend, a friend of a director, um, a, a nice guy by the name of Don Sikorsky. He's a crazy about reading true crime, happened to pick up my book in a bookstore and read it and went to, um, Brad Furman, the director uh, of the Lincoln lawyer and others and said, Brad, we got to do this film. Next thing I know, I'm on the phone with Brad. And um, ultimately, we work out a deal, and he finds a, a production company, and we're off and running. And um, and ultimately, I'm fortunate enough that uh, Brian Cranston decides to to take the lead, and um, and now that's all history. Well, is that the Don Sikorsky that was a government employee? I don't think so. He does documentaries. Oh no, um, okay. Yeah, he does don uh, documentaries. Hey, let's. I know that you've had the chance to talk with Brian too before because you've been working. He kind of, uh, I think you said too, was the inspiration for wanting to do the second book. Did you get a chance to talk to Brian before he took the role? In other words, did you have any vote or did you have any influence on who got the role? No. Um, one thing you learn is that when you sign the rights over, you uh, sign them over. <laughs> you sign the rights over. Now they're going to give you all this Hollywood talk yeah. about. It, oh, you know, we really care about what. Wait a minute! This sounds familiar. You're my brother. I'll die for you. They give you a little gift too, right, and make you yeah, yeah. feel good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But believe me, um, there were many, 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 many things that I just felt were so off the charts that you know, 
But, you know, I've, I've also heard people who said, you're lucky I never even got a chance to talk to them, let alone get to talk to the, the actors. And, and one of the reasons for that, in my view, this was an independently financed film. So we're not talking about a huge buzz, budget. I think it was like 27 million bucks. So now the production company looks at me and they know that I'm the kind of guy who's going to say, man, you know, that's not really the way it happened, this, that, and the other thing. So they don't want me on set all that much, but the director wants me there all the time. So tug of war on that. But eventually uh, I, I, you know, I did get to share some things that I think um, really I'm, I'm very happy are in the film. One of which is there's a scene near the end where Brian Cranston is in this wedding hall where he's about to get married and in walks Benjamin Bratt, who's playing the role of Roberto El Cayeno. And they had some kind of a line in there about that. They had him saying something. And I said, I said, Brian, that's probably one of the last things I'd have said to Roberto if he came in, <laughs> he said, really, what was it? And now we're like five minutes from the shoot. He goes, what would you have said? And I said, well, what I would have said was I'm, I'm so happy to see you, but there's a part of me that wishes you weren't here. And he goes, damn, we're going to use that for sure. <laughs> and, and then he used that line uh, in, in the film. So, I mean, some of the things, yeah, they, they use, and some of the things, uh, uh, there was no way to, to move them on it. Um, so, yeah. But I, you know what? I'm, I'm very proud of that team. I think that, you know, it could have been a lot different outcome. It could have been a lot worse. And, and, and I am, extraordinarily proud that uh, a man who's so down to earth and so considerate um, like Brian Cranston spent the time with me days with me cared a lot about what my wife thought cared a lot about what my kids thought and did his very best not to portray me but to portray the typical public servant who wants to do the right thing that many thousands of our colleagues, you know, wear that same skin. And he just wanted to get it right about why we do what we do. Good for him. You know, and, 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 um, and he, I, I truly, I consider him a friend. I'm sure when he sees my, my phone number come up, it's like, Oh shit again. It's kind of like what I call you. Oh shit. What's Murph on? Now? Murph yeah, no, no, no. I say the same thing too, except I just put Murph's number. I send his directly to voicemail, you know, just like, I don't, you know, don't, I, I take his calls, please. Don't, don't everybody think that. Hey, but, but that's so interesting too, because you, you know, he, it's not that he came out of nowhere, but I mean, his role in Breaking Bad, it was so interesting because you look at the infiltrator on the one hand, he's a really good guy doing this stuff. And then I see him in the next breath being Walter White, being such a good bad guy. That's the good mark of an actor is they make you believe oh, yeah. in the role, you know? He's and, fantastic. Uh, were, now, were you disappointed that, that uh, Brian would become Walter White and would ruin the obviously stellar reputation you had in the movie The Infiltrator by becoming a meth dealer? <laughs> no. You know, and, and Brian likes honesty, and my wife isn't going to hold back. She watched the first episode and the last episode of Breaking Bad and said, I was an educator all my life, and I cannot bring myself 
to watch a portrayal of a teacher <laughs> become a meth dealer. And I saw the first and last one. And, and, and so when Brian asked me, he said, oh, did you watch Breaking Bad? I said, we watched it a little because we were curious, but for two different reasons. You know, my wife's offended that a teacher would be portrayed to do that. And I said, Brian, the other one was when I saw you in those tidy whities that was it for me. That was it for like me. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, just at least boxers. Do boxers, man. Whitey whities <laughs> Oh, this is going downhill very quickly. Oh, <laughs> well, let's let's talk though about your latest project too, because this was based upon, like you said, and Murph, uh, I'll let Murph sit because he's got a saying about cops we both believe in. Yeah. Nobody hates a bad cop worse than a good cop. Right. And how did this, how did this operation affect you to the point of where you, you, you wanted to write a book about it? Well, <clears throat> my motivation to accept the offer from DEA to come to that agency was certainly in part um, because of Mike's promise of wanting to give me the opportunity to get back into the underworld and go after what I thought was extraordinarily important. Yes, getting inside the Cali cartel, identifying the owners of the money and the brokers and all that other stuff, that's important. But to me, what was most important is I am of the firm belief that the greatest majority of the $2 trillion a year that gets laundered for every type of walk of criminal activity is principally laundered by a small number of intentional, corrupt bankers, businessmen, financial service providers who service that money. They are probably the most visible one of late in prosecution by a DEA SOD case um, is, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Altaf Kanani, who was really the Goldman Sachs for the underworld, laundering about $16 billion a year based in Pakistan and Dubai. Those guys are out there. Those banks are intentionally involved in that. And it just disturbs me that people like to think that bad guys are stupid enough to try to trick people into laundering their money. Every major bad guy I ever talked to about this said, I want guarantees. They're not going to come and try to trick you into handling their money. You're going to be their biggest nightmare. So I wanted to be able to get the further evidence about that aspect of support to the underworld. Yeah, I, I was going to get as much as I could about the Panamanian underworld um, and the Cali cartel. And I think we would have done 10 times more than what we did if it wasn't for this officer compromising the operation. Mm -hmm. um, but eventually... As it became clear, and the way I found out about it was that, um, you know, DEA had the princess. DEA had a female informant at the top levels of the Cali cartel who was a major resource who's written a book herself called Snatched. Um, and she went to a meeting, and lo and behold, one of the guys who I was dealing with, I mean, she was at a very top end meeting of the Cali cartel. And one of the guys that I dealt with, a money broker and, and drug trafficker, was there and said, man, we've got the greatest thing in the world. We've got a cop on the take. And he's in Tampa. And he used to work with this guy um, in Sarasota. And that guy in, in Sarasota and Panama. And that guy is a DEA undercover agent. 
and everybody who's working with him are DEA agents and informants. I'd suspected him for many different reasons, and I lay it out in the book before that, but now it was for sure. Um, there was only one person that that could possibly be. Hey, and Bob, and, at that point, did he know? Did he know that you knew? Did he have a suspicion along those times that you were on to him? No, it was time for me to give him disinformation. I convinced Mike <laughs> that I need to stay under, and he compromised a spoke or two of the wheel, but only a spoke or two, although it was the most, most lethal spoke in the Cali cartel. Um, and it was only a faction. My theory was that um, I could keep the rest of it alive, but if I fed him disinformation, I could help us to get the, inf the evidence that we really needed to, uh, to really put him away. And the most important thing he wanted to know, no doubt, was when are we taking it down? So I, I had a meeting with him that I give a lot of detail about in the book. And I knew that the uh, world soccer uh, tournament, part of it was going to be in Orlando at Disney. And those were going to be hot tickets. We were taking it down three months before that, but I convinced him that that was the plan. We were taking it down then. And, um, when we took the case down, by then, you know, we're all over pen registers, we're all over all kinds of stuff on him. And we uh, told him, Mike invited him to the office in February. It wasn't June, it was February. And he said, uh, man, you, you really helped us a lot in this case. And we, we're going to have a victory party here tonight at the, the Marriott, at the Hyatt. So, you know, can you join us? And because we got, we're going to take everybody down. But the one guy that you dealt with, he's in Fort Lauderdale, uh, came in for some other reasons. We're going to take him down. Well, he wasn't in Fort Lauderdale, but that guy, he didn't know that. So he goes, nah, I, I got a lot of work I got to do back at the office. I'm in homicide now. And they threw these cases on my desk and blah, blah, blah. He gets in the car and we've got the, the chopper with the gyro. We've got, uh, plane up. We got all kinds of air surveillance. He goes to payphone, 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 eventually meets with one of his informants. And, um, and at that meeting, the informant goes, you know, they're probably outside because they had no reason to tell you <laughs> why this was going on the way, the way that it did. But we really didn't have enough, you know, officer of the year. So we eventually flipped one of the informants that uh, had gone bad with him and, um, and got him to record. And Guy was smart, man. He'd get in the car. He'd turn up a talk radio show, blast in a talk radio show, put a cup of his hand over the guy's ear, whisper um, what was going on. And um, the last time we tried it, we put the mic in the lapel, the, the, uh, yeah, the lapel, the left lapel of the informant, like right under his ear. And he got in the passenger seat. This guy cupped his hand over it. And he didn't know it, but he was talking right into the mic. Uh. And we had, <laughs> we had the whole thing on tape. And, um, and, and then we took it down and we did the search warrant. And um, I wrote the search warrant. And among other things that one would not expect would be in somebody's home, stashed between the insulation in the attic and the ceiling, was a 33-page Natus report, one of the most recent ones for Miguel, uh, Miguel Rodriguez Orjuela. Um, wow. All types of cash, 
records of cash deposits, buying cashier's checks, hey, buying Bob, things. And, and let, let our players out there know what NATIS is. Yeah, the um, national, what is it, uh, NATIS? Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs Information yeah. System. Yeah. It's DEA's internal reporting mechanism. Yeah. It's kind of, for those who are out there uh, that were in customs, it's kind of the equivalent of tax. Tax, uh, yeah. Treasury Enforcement uh, custom System, yeah. And, so, that, and that's really, that's some of your most valuable, basically, information and intelligence. That's that's very close hold stuff that that is that is being pulled together. And so the fact that he has this outside the office, hidden behind the insulation, somebody might look at that and go, look, I ain't a highly trained observer, but the, I call that a clue. He's trying to hide something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a clue for sure. So, um, but, uh, but any, with that, with the tapes, with... Uh, I did a, you know, having been an IRS agent, it was pretty easy for me to put the financial side of it together uh, to show all the unexplained deposits that he had, all the unexplained cash expenditures he had. Um, we had him dead to rights. Uh, he pled guilty and uh, the judge hit him under the guidelines with a max sentence. And no nice. John Doe tax returns, right? No John Doe tax returns. <laughs> Good. Well, you know, and you're being humble about this because he dimed you out early in the investigation. You're already undercover, right? Yes. And it's just by the grace of God, we're talking to you today. I mean, you're I talking in, about the Cali cartel. I was in Colombia, undercover. They knew who I was. And the guy who knew who I was kept trying to string it out. Luckily, the DEA, we have a plan. There's an exit time. You damn well know you're exiting at the exit time. <laughs> you're not staying too long. I was in a restaurant, uh, Tremonti. Uh, up on the top of a hill, holding court with uh, everybody and anybody from the Cali cartel that I could get my hands on to meet me. Because what I really wanted was, no, you know, as I was told, and I don't know if it's true or not, but I was told that at that stage, because we're talking 1991, um, there weren't there weren't undercover operations that we'd done. It was pretty much forbidden for undercover ops in Colombia. Mm -hmm. So and actually, it was kind of an interesting thing. After I meet there, the guy who knows from the dirty cup that I'm a DEA agent calls him and goes, you son of a booger, you, you know, you lied to me. He can't be an agent. We all know they can't come here undercover. He was at Tremonti's all day and, and they tried to get me to stay later. And I said, no, ain't happening. Actually, I, I was in the restaurant a half an hour longer than the ops plan. And my boss later on wanted to cut my tongue out for yeah. for staying there 30 minutes later than I was supposed to. But yeah, no. I, and then after that, I was doing undercover in Panama, which, you know, it was just as easy to get grabbed there. Uh, okay. <laughs> Still, like I said, by the grace of God, brother. Yep. Yeah, you're down, you're down. Well, now it's the gentlemen of Cali Cartelas. We're finding out from Chris and Dave. So we're doing a whole series on Patreon with Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell, who they made season three of Narcos about. Okay. about working with the gentleman of Cali, the same gentleman who ripped people apart with chains on her motorcycle, you know, and disappeared yeah. Well, it, them. Yeah. It wasn't motorcycles. It was vehicles. VS SUV. That it was, no, it was That's motorcycles. It was motorcycles in <laughs> Narcos. I, yeah. But yes, the, and they were, they were fuel efficient electric SUVs. So everybody was green <laughs> when they did this. Hey, Bob, let's, let's, let's kind of bring this now uh, towards a close here. Let, let's talk real quick too about, um, You've got two books out now. So you've got The Infiltrator out, and then you've got Betrayal out. A uh, movie was made about The Infiltrator. What, what's going on with Betrayal? Any uh, appetite on that one for uh, seeing the silver screen or streaming? 
Yeah. Um, Amazon Publishing bought my book for dist distribution in North America. And at almost the same time, Amazon Studios bought the movie rights. So we have a small team that they've uh, engaged to attempt to put a screenplay together. And um, it's, it's amazing, but probably one in a thousand books gets through that uh, process. So, you know, yeah, we're hopeful that, you know, that'll happen. Certainly the fact that Brian Cranston has an interest in it makes a difference. Well, he, um, is it potentially, would he be in this one too? Yeah, it'd be a sequel. Oh, be oh, a sequel. Be cool. Oh, that'd that be, would cool. be cool. Yeah. But now is your advice going to him to be, look, you can do anything you want in this movie, but I have one rule, no tidy whities <laughs> <laughs> Hey, and, and uh, where can people find your books now? Sure. Well, you know, I've got a website. It's uh, Robert Mazur, M-A-Z-U-R.com. You so sure it's not Musello? No, it's not. That's my undercover name. I really yes, sir. Where's, hey, where's my sticky note? I want to feel like I belong here. <laughs> I got your sticky yeah. note right here. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you go on there, there's a tab for uh, books and film. And then from there you go to uh, the betrayal and um, you can see a promotional video, uh, a read at the beginning of the, the audio book. I got the chance to read the audio book, which was kind of uh, brilliance, which is a, uh, uh, kind of an offshoot of Amazon that that uh, took the audiobook. And um so we'll see what happens and, and you know and hope for the best to try to uh, to do something with it. I, I think most importantly, um, yeah, I really, you know, it would be fun to do that and I'd really like to do that. Um, but what I really want to do as much as I possibly can is to continue to present around the world. I just got back from Cairo. I'll be going to Germany here soon. Um, I've had the opportunity to speak in the Far East, the Middle East, just about any place you name it, other than Colombia. And um, so I, I, uh, I, I really want to get my, my story out there to the private sector and to the public sector about what I believe is the things that we can be doing and should be doing that we're not doing uh, in order to do a more effective job on this effort to stop the poison of, of drug uh, consumption, illegal drug consumption around the world. I, I wrote a white paper in 2019 and on my, um, on my website, you can find the publications page that has on one side articles about me and one side articles by me. So if somebody scrolled down to 2019, they'll see the white paper in it. I think that money laundering, there's a distortion about the effectiveness that law enforcement applies in the use of the money laundering statute. 99% of the time, it's an add-on statute to a case where we've got the drug dealer locked in. We've got the health care fraud guy locked in. No, just like the um, counterterrorism, joint, joint counterterrorism task force run by one central location, all terrorist-related information goes through that center. There should be a similar center that goes after money launderers. There are people who make a living laundering money. They don't give a damn if you're involved in drug trafficking, you're pilfering treasuries, you're dealing with prohibited nations like Iran. They're just there to hide the darn money. Those people, we need to identify the top 10 and start knocking them off. And those task forces need to have a rich involvement of local law enforcement, state, federal, the military. I think the, the SOD model is perfect 
for the types of agencies that should be involved. Hey, for that matter, I'd love to see it to be a branch of SOD that only had the responsibility of going after money laundering. But you've got to centralize this. And then you've right. got to get cooperation from different nations to do it. So, you know, I, I, I really feel that that's the best way that we can go after money launderers and scare the hell out of the people that might otherwise want to do that. You know, there's a lot, a lot of money. Two trillion can get a lot of good people to do a lot of bad things. <laughs> so, you know, for all our listeners out there, if you're looking for speakers, I've heard Bob do his presentation in San Diego. Uh, obviously, you can tell he's well-educated, very well-spoken here. You've got his email address now. We're going to post his books on our, on our sites here. Uh, reach out to this guy. You know, we, I mean, he's talking about going to Cairo. We're going to Pennsylvania tomorrow. Same thing. Well, and, you, I, and you may be going to Garden City, <laughs> Kansas too, Murph. Talk about highfalutin. Here. Well, when I, when I get the opportunity to, to uh, share time with law enforcement, I, besides sharing ideas about how you identify and prosecute uh, money laundering cases, I also focus on the techniques that one should consider using to enhance rapport and communication um, but then also, uh, I have a block strictly on defense tactics, attempting to convince juries that undercover techniques um, go over the line and that agents go over the line. Because there are ways in which it doesn't matter what kind of case that's there, what evidence is there. They have their, they have their formula for how they try to attack undercover operations. And it's really important for you to know what that formula is before you start making a case, so you prevent um, innocently making some of those or having right. some of those flaws. Forward thinking and being prepared. There you go. Yeah. I'm shocked. Who? who why would we do that? Why aren't we just pulling this out of our ass and just John Weaning it like like the good old days, huh? <laughs> that's, that's what Miami Vice did. <laughs> that's what yeah. they, of course, they also had a script and a budget, you know, and, and the that's end true. was never in doubt because you were the writer. You could control this. Hey, Bob, let me ask you this. Final thoughts. Um, you've done a lot of things. You've been in a lot of roles. For you, what was the biggest lesson in life that you were taught before you got into law enforcement that guided your actions? That you know, Because you were presented, like you said, with so many opportunities. It was great to hear you talk about your wife and your kids because we've had some guys come on and talk about some of their demons that they've dealt with after working undercover or stuff, you know, Lou Velozzi episode four, Joe Pistone, or not Joe Pistone, <laughs> Joe Pirasanti, sorry, uh, the DEA agent who was shot in the head over in Afghanistan. A lot of people went to some very dark places. Where do you think you learned this moral compass early on to, so that you could separate clearly and not have this carryover between the fictional world and the real world? I wish it wasn't true, but I'd say I'm lucky. Um, I'm lucky that I had leadership that had enough foresight to recognize the value of truly helping agents to understand the tools they need, the knowledge they need to do long-term undercover. I'm lucky that I'm not an agent who just got assigned by DEA to the city that's furthest away from where his family is uh, with a wife who's got a baby and who's sitting at home thinking about nothing other than what is he doing now? Um, I have, my wife was an educator, completely dedicated to her first grade class, uh, a mentor for a lot of those kids um, who was devoted to doing that and devoted to uh, raising our kids. And, and I'm lucky that I had a mom and dad 
who, as I said before, you know, were all about government service. My dad hardly ever talked about what happened in World War II. Um, just before he passed, we, he shared some stories with me. But he was at Enzio. He was on, on beach landings in Africa and Palermo and many other places. And um, I didn't just hear about his love of country and my mom's. I felt it. You know, I felt it. So, so that helped. You know, but did I stumble? Yeah, hell yeah, I stumbled. We're all going to stumble. Nobody's perfect. And you know what? We're all going to make mistakes. Um, but when you finally get that opportunity to self-reflect and think about that rabbit hole you're just about ready to get down into, um, if you've got, if you've got that, uh, that background to be able to help you. And, and you know, I, I talk about the psychological profiling. I mean, I don't know it any more sophisticated than this. So the shrink told me they're looking for somebody. They're looking for people who see things black and white. Not a lot of gray. Not a lot of rationalizing. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. And if you're going to be starting to rationalize certain things of, you know, socializing with informants and that's you know, the slippery the slope. Down, it's the beginning of the slippery slope. Yep. And, you know, and I had great teachers, you know, when I started as an agent and I don't know that they do that this much anymore. Um, they stuck me with the oldest, grumpiest, most talented agent that was in the office and I got him his damn coffee and everything else that he wanted. And I didn't care because I knew that if I watched him and I stayed with him, I was going to learn a hell of a lot. And I yep. did. And I didn't have to worry about having a, uh, a, a, a test of, you know, a supervisory review that I had with, with uh, six months on the job that I had X number of informants and I did X numbers of this and X numbers of that. You got to walk before you can run. And I really think that if we invest heavily in the training, not just with training, but we invest to help people to understand about the job before we expect them to do certain portions of the job, that, you know, throwing somebody in the deep end of the pool isn't always the right answer, you know, to things. And, you know, my hat off to him. There are, there are agents out there, men and women, you can throw them in the deep end and they're going to pop right up. And, and they don't need it. But even if there's only one that we save by doing things through the fundamentals, it's right. worth doing. It's worth doing. Yeah. And those are the exception, not the rule. There are a lot of good people out there, but not you cannot on a regular basis throw people into the deep end and say, well, we'll just pick the survivors. doesn't work that way. You get a lot of good people that if they're just taught the skills, if they're taught how to do things. They will become fantastic agents. They will become fantastic detectives. They will become fantastic, you know, analysts. But, but, but I agree with you. I think the training is one of the most underserved things we've looked at in law enforcement. We think, oh, you've been through the academy. That's good. It's like, no, just like you would do firearms training. Where's our training psychologically? Where's our training ethically? Where's our training, um, you know, analytically? Where's our ability to do critical thinking? I think we've got to, if we really want it for these folks who say, let's reimagine policing. Yeah, let's reimagine in a place to where you invested in one of the most important things that a society does, which is the protection of life and property. There are very few things that are more important than the protection of life and property. And are we funding it to the extent that we can have, to the extent we consider how important it is to us. And I think there's a huge difference. It's like with teachers, we don't fund teachers near enough, but yet we entrust them with teaching our kids, you know, to be with them, 
you know, eight hours a day or whatever. So I think I think society, to your point, has to start making some value judgments to say what's really important and what do we want? And are we funding it correctly to get the results that we're looking for? Yeah. I mean, one of the most rewarding blocks that I deliver, rewarding for me, um, is managing informants. I put a block together that's, you know, generally it's either an hour and a half to two hours, but um, so many things are taken for granted um, by officers when it comes to building relationships with informants. And I not only pick on the the officer who is the unfortunate negative star in the betrayal, but, you know, I go into other cases like the Whitey Bulger case and and many other cases that the core of the whole embarrassment to the agency and the imprisonment of the officer came about because of the mismanagement of the informant, not mm-hmm. continually recognizing that, okay, you're going to make them think that maybe the relationship is different, but you've got to treat them like a snake, keep them firm at the neck. And you've got, you can never, ever take anything for second granted. Uh, you, you just can't, you absolutely have to, t- uh, to recognize that they are lethal between informants, cars, and a few other things. <laughs> informants is way up there you know, on things that have caused the unfortunate end and embarrassment in the life of law enforcement officers. Right. And for male officers, it's usually women too. Women informants and fast cars has been the downfall of many right. male cops. And, co- and, and money. Money. Yeah. yeah. If you want a good class on that too, we just did episode uh, 35. It was uh, Rich Moraz. He was the captain out at Rampart when the whole Rampart scandal went through. He's got, just wow. like you hit Bob, lessons in leadership, things that they need to learn when you look back on it. And uh, I think just fantastic stuff. Well, look, this is something we could talk about for a long time, but we've kept you to the allotted time and a little past we talked about. But hey, folks can't see this, but this is me saluting you saying thank you for doing a tremendous job. I mean, it's it's an honor to speak to people like you because what's the really great thing about it is to hear the con- not just the story, but the conviction in your voice that you say the same thing. I just wanted to serve. I just wanted to make a difference. No, you're not doing it for the money. If you'd done it for the money, you would have figured out how to launder all that money for Noriega yourself, and you'd still be in Panama somewhere filing your John Doe tax returns. Oh, he would have gone to be a CPA. <laughs> hey, Bob, it's been, and I just want to echo what Morgan said here. It's it's been an honor to have you on here. The the you know I'm glad that things are working out for you in retirement. It doesn't for everybody. Uh, fantastic, but a lot of that has to do with your own personality and uh, recognizing opportunities when they present themselves. So having you come on here and talk about your books, your unbelievable career. <laughs> I, I, you know, I've already said it two or three times, but I, just by the grace of God, we're glad to have you on the show, brother, because um, there's a lot of reasons you shouldn't even be here with us, too. Yeah, well, you know, thank God you bless guys. God thank bless you. the wife and the family. Uh, I'm not going to mention her name here on the, on the show, but uh, it takes that strong support structure at home to live that undercover life and then to stick with you after all these years. So what an honor, brother. Can't wait to see you again at the next function. Well, thanks a lot. And thank you guys for your service. Very much so. It makes I was a just a you trooper. A yeah, I was just a trooper, according to Murph. You know, I didn't really do much. So, but uh, well, wrote, he did write tickets and work recs. <laughs> well, and, and I, what was, you do? I was a detective too. Let's not forget that. Let's not. Oh forget. yeah, he escorted cows off the highway. Okay, yeah. so I forgot that they were very important cows. You know who these cows <laughs> belong to, pal? I got important people. Hey, look, yeah. let's do this. You guys hang tight. Everybody else, you saw this is going to be a great episode. But you guys all stay tuned for the debrief. 
You know, everybody was thought I was crazy when I said this is the intro to the episode I was talking about, Dan Brown, and, you know, watch the, watch the first five minutes in your hook. Mm-hmm. His story is like, it, it's just amazing that this guy, with all of the stuff he's done, and then for Hollywood not to come to him once, but come to him twice over books he's written. I mean, that's like winning the lottery twice. By the way, if you win the lottery and you don't want to report your earnings, just make sure, as we found out from Bob, just follow John Doe tax return. That is the biggest takeaway I got from this. If I'm going to go out and start selling stuff that's illegal, you know, who knows? As long as I file my John Doe tax return, I'm good. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Trish would kick your butt if you try to do that. <laughs> she gets you straightened right out, just like Connie would. But what a, I mean, what an interview. I, can you believe? I mean, talk about long-term undercover. I did some UC work, but it was very, very short-term. I mean, it was it was a meeting here, a meeting there, and it might carry on for, uh, you know, several months. But we're talking, you know, I don't know, 30-minute to two-hour meetings, and that was it. Here's a guy that went under deep cover for, you know, years at a time to really infiltrate these people, went to Columbia, which back then, you know, UCs weren't allowed to come into Columbia because of the danger factor, and he went down there. I've met Bob. I've met his wife. Great people. Um, he's He doesn't come across as an imposing guy. He just looks like a normal guy. But, man, it takes some stones to do what he did. Stones of steel, baby. You know, like yep. buns of steel and stones of steel. So, I mean, it it does. And, it, you know, it makes you proud to know people like this because he said he never wanted to be a supervisor, never wanted to move up. He loved doing what he was doing. And if you've heard a common theme out of any of these episodes, it's that so many of these people, the only thing they want to do is serve their country, serve their community. They want to do good. And uh, Bob, you sure as heck did good. I mean, you did good no matter where you worked at, but taking down these guys, because it is. You you guys were going after Pablo, and like we're talking with uh, Chris Feistel and Dave Matthews, going after the Cali cartel. But at the end of the day, it takes drugs and money. If you can remove one of those from the equation, that's good. If you can remove both of those from the, the equation, that's even better. And so you guys were that one-two punch. So this is us saluting you again, Bob. Job well done, don't you think, Absolutely. Steve? Absolutely. Absolutely. Very proud of you, brother. And it wasn't Dave Matthews, it's Dave Mitchell. You must have been listening to some music. Uh, well, it is Dave Matthews now. He's going to have to change his name because once <laughs> I put it out there, that's Dave Matthews. I can't believe I said that. All right. You know how big he is. I don't know. You'd be the one to tell him that. I'm not going to tell him that. Well, he's the KY Colonel, and you're going to have to listen to <laughs> patreon.com slash Game of Crimes when we put out our Cali episodes if you want to know where the KY Colonel came from. so Oh, and you got to listen to those because I'm learning stuff I never knew about these guys. This is fantastic. I'm, I'm having a blast doing these interviews. Oh, these these are good. And we're not done yet. We're up to 10. I know 11 and 12. 11 I think and 12 We've, coming up. Yeah. We've got, we've still got some more coming up. So you guys head on over. And by the way, speaking of heading on over, head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Give us those five stars. Let us know what you think about this stuff. But it really helps, folks. It really does. It gets the awareness out there and gets us more listeners and it allows us to tell even more stories. Also, again, head on over to patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. That's where it's happening at. Good stuff coming. Head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got uh, Bob's books up there, uh, The Infiltrator and The Betrayal. You got to read The Betrayal, man. If you want to see, uh, nobody hates a corrupt corrup cop, a bad cop more than a good cop. Right. And I'm glad that they nailed this guy. So well done on that one. But again, you know, just just head on over there. Tell us what you think about this stuff. Uh, drop us a note on Twitter, the Instagram, because we are there. We're at Game of Crimes on Twitter. We're at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. I mean, we're just all over the place. If you can't find us, you're not trying hard enough. Yeah. Just let us know. Let us know. We'll tell you how to find us. Yeah. <laughs> Just tell us where to go, too. Apparently, there's well, several of you out do. there that like doing that. So. <laughs> some people do.
All right. Well, hey, guys, we're going to bring this to a close, but but stay tuned. We got more good stuff in store. We got a lot of episodes we're recording over the next few weeks. This this is going to we got some great stuff. So everybody stay tuned. And thank you once again for listening to the biggest, baddest, funnest and most dangerous game of all, which we do undercover very well. The Game of Crimes. (laughs) 